scripture reading um, is afterwards, verses 1 through 9. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning. This is the eighth Sunday in this season that we call Ordinary Time, a time, a part of the year where we're trying to have our lives integrated into this one grand story of salvation and redemption that God is telling. It's a gift to be able to do this through Exodus because it's this important moment in the scriptures where you actually see this cosmic story of salvation and redemption intersect with God's people in a particular time in a particular place with particular people. It's a story where we learn, at least I learn, that I'm not the protagonist of my own story. I'm not the main actor. In fact, it's the people in the story who believe that truth that are the principal villains. But if it's not my story, if it's not our story, then we're called to live into the life and the drama of a story that is not under my control and that still has not yet been resolved. We're caught in the middle of a conflict that has not yet been completed. As I was thinking of this passage this week, I was reminded um, a couple years ago of a family that had come to help me. That, well, no, the family hadn't come. The family had come to me for help, had come to the church as part of. And I think for all of you who have kind of been in a similar situation and kind of had a family come to you in dire straits, some of the contours of this story will sound somewhat familiar. The finances were uh, very uncertain. Uh, it fluctuated a lot with this family. Their housing was really unstable at the time. They'd kind of been in different places. Uh, we're currently living with friends that lived with them for six or seven months. They had burned a lot of the bridges of all the relationships, both in their extended family and networks of friends. But there were really young kids involved, really wonderful kids, who, of course, were kind of at the whims of their parents' decisions. And so oftentimes people, I think, could see that and they wanted to help this family um, so much, get to a place of stability, get to a place where their situation was a little different than the place that they were at 
there. They came to me at this point, having already been through what I'd call like a carousel of, they'd been to probably every and through every public and social program possible to help the family in this situation. And I knew that they had been to any number of churches around in that area. And there's something that can happen in those cases um, that I would maybe term as uh, compassion exhaustion. That is to say that they would kind of be in one church or in one place or with one program or some of their friends all the way through and probably past the point where those friends were trying to help them get back on their feet and the patterns just seemed to continue again and again. So eventually they would say, all right, you guys got to move on. You got to do something else. And then they would just go to the next, uh, the next one in the rotation there. I could see that at, with me, both with me and with the, the church there, that they were kind of getting to this place where there's going to be that same dynamic of compassion exhaustion, where I was trying to kind of work with them and make sure that they had the needs that they provided for, but I wanted this mutual sense of here are some things that could really not just change your situation temporarily, but permanently. And if you can do those things, I think we could work together and really kind of get you guys stable housing and just into a different place. But it, it wasn't really working all that well. Um, and so then I had this brilliant idea because I didn't want this family to move on. I'd gotten really accustomed to them. I'd been with them to like court appointments. I'd gone to important family events with them. And so I, I thought to myself, there's got to be a way where I can prevent this just same situation where it's like they've depleted all their ability, my ability to help them and others around here and are just going to move to the next church. And my idea was this, over the time I'd spent with them, I got uh, quite a bit of the sense of who the key players in their life were. The friends, family, other kind of, again, people that were involved in social work institutions that were seeking to help them. And I started to think to myself, if I could just maybe get us all together, all sort of in communication, in contact, perhaps we'd be able to work through some of the, the complicating of not having an accountability sense for this family, of really, again, making some deep, profound changes in their lives, and also feeling the spirit of cooperation so that we didn't feel singled out and then exhausted by the needs of this family. I thought, you know, there's going to be effort, there's going to be time and energy involved in this, but I'm the person to do it. I can do this. I want to be the church to them. I want to be somebody that they can count on, be faithful to them, whether it's easy or whether it's difficult. And the church that I'm at was kind of on board with that same dynamic. So I started to call people on this list. And certainly, as you might imagine, people were kind of skeptical. I had, like I said, kind of spoken to some of these people, but we didn't have like a, a long, long relationship here. And what I was trying to do is just begin with, there was the family had just kind of asked, they needed um, some money for food during the week. And so just trying to see if I could get people to maybe kick in a little bit, and all together we would then be able to give this family a gift and say, you know, this is all of us all coming together. We all want to support you, be a part of this with you. And uh, then we'd all also know what the needs were that were going out to each other. And so I felt like, you know, I, people were a little skeptical, but that it wasn't an impossible thing. And then I got to um, one, of the, one of the contacts. It was actually uh, the friend that this family was staying with. She had an apartment, and it was like a two-bedroom apartment, so the family was all living in one room of it, and then she had a, a husband who was sick and a son who was disabled, uh, and she was helping to take care of them. I knew a little bit um, about this friend, uh, that she was almost to the point of fatigue here. I think that at this point, the family had been living with them for about six or so months, 
and she really only wanted it to be for a couple weeks. And so I thought, you know, this will be a good thing, because then what you'll hear is, is that we as, you know, kind of the church and um, all these other people that have called, we're all going to be working together, and maybe we'll be able to get them out of there quicker. But her response was a little bit different than what I anticipated. Once I started kind of telling her what I was hoping to ask for, that we were all going to work together to provide this need for food, she was outraged with me. She was furious. She chewed me out for about 15 minutes. She criticized both my integrity as a pastor and the church generally, thinking that we should have been more than willing to help her, that she had for months helped to provide housing for them. She had been asked time and time again, as I can imagine, for favors from this family because she was the most immediate person there, and that she already had her own husband and her son to care for, um, and so she was not going to help. And not only did she ask me never to call her again, but she did tell me in that moment that she was so upset that there was this pastor she didn't know calling her to ask her for a family that she already felt like she had done so much for, that she was going to do something that was long overdue and kick the family out of the house altogether. She hung up at that point, and I tried to call her again. I tried to text her, and to no avail. I couldn't get a hold of her anymore. I remember in that moment what I felt like as I was processing the consequences of my call. I'd started all this with this good intention that I wanted to bring this lasting change, kind of affect a real, a real difference in this family's life, and that if I could just kind of get everybody on board again, we'd all be able to work together. But at the end of that phone call with their friend, I realized that they were in a much worse situation than they were before. I had no means of getting them housing if they were going to be kicked out. And the thing that I always feel like I remember in that moment the most is feeling as though it confirmed exactly the thing that I would have been apprehensive about at the very beginning, to really step into somebody's messy life for me, would always probably wind up backfiring in this way. It would only complicate or make things worse, or at the very best, not really affect a, a, a true net change in their life, and there would be a lot of wasted energy and effort in it. I think in situations like that, and maybe many of you, if you've never had that kind of experience, it doesn't take it to even see it in my head. I can always think even before that, that was kind of a, a confirmation of it. But oh man, if I, really, if I really kind of invest myself in this person's life, I don't know how it's going to turn out. And so I end up maybe risk averse, right? I end up distancing myself. I'm willing, again, in superficial ways maybe to, to help a family or to help somebody who comes to me, but I don't want to actually dive in deep to it. I'll just allow them, again, to go through that carousel or that rotation of people and move on to the next one if it really requires something of me that I'm not certain what the outcome will be. But I feel like, as I was thinking about that story and its impact, that part of the gift of Exodus 5 is that Exodus doesn't end at chapter 5. And neither does that my story with that family end precisely at that moment. It doesn't mean that it's not something painful to experience right then and there. But it does mean that we have a hope, we have a sense that what God is calling us into is bigger than any particular moment or any particular actor in our story. 
If you go to the very end of Exodus chapter 5, after he and Aaron have gone to Moses, and Moses has, or if after Moses and Aaron have gone to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has um, imposed on the Israelites to make bricks without straw, Moses says these words in verses 22 and 23. O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Ever feel like you've been with Moses? I think it's important to hear these words that Moses says here in the context to rewind the story a little bit. You all remember, as Pastor Jeff began us here, that Exodus opens with this account of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob. That God had created this world and that improbably it had separated, it had fallen away from, become corrupted from God, and yet God calls out Abraham. And through the whole story of Genesis, through these risks of barrenness and of certain death, God's promise yet again and again overcomes those obstacles to begin to make this people that's going to be a blessing to the world. And somehow when we get to the opening of Exodus and you see it, sin has become this greater and greater opponent all the way organized into this counter-kingdom through Egypt and through Pharaoh of sin and death and slavery. And while it appears in the vanity of evil that it's going to engulf the whole world and finally seal it off from God, we see cracks in the fissures in the humble midwives who, in reverence to God, make sure that Pharaoh's orders are not carried out and in the love of Moses' family for their son, who is saved and then made this prince of Egypt. Moses' story, as we followed it so far, is this testimony of grace and of love, of humanity's sin and exile. It's a story of princes and wanderers, of the mighty and the humble. And in Exodus 3, at this moment in his life, when he's experienced that exile, and as far away as he could be from being somebody who would be a savior or a deliverer, God calls him out of a burning bush back to deliver his people. But even in that conversation, Moses himself is stubbornly refusing this call that God is placing on his life, as Pastor Jeff kind of led us through here a couple weeks ago. And perhaps at the heart of all Moses' stammering and reluctance is the logic, either you're powerful enough that you don't need me to go anyways and you can do it on your own, or you're not powerful enough and I'm certainly not going to make the difference. Either way, I wouldn't need to go. But ultimately, God in his faithfulness wrestles with Moses. And even in all those obstacles, what God shows is that this is not a story ultimately about forceful power, but about a conversion of love. And God, in wanting to fulfill his promise, converts Moses' heart to make him a man who can live into the mission of God, and so then shows the way that God will convert the world back to himself. Wonderfully, last week, as Pastor Jeff led us, it shows that even as Moses here has found himself initially committed to being able to carry out God's plan of redemption for Israel, there's still sins of his past. His son had not been committed as to be one of the covenant. Pastor Jeff suggested a couple reasons that might be the case. But Moses, if he was going to be in this, needed to stake not just himself, but his whole family on the promise, on the dependence of God to fulfill that promise to Abraham 
and to the people of God. And so consecrates his son, makes him one of the covenant there. And what you see through all this, through Moses' speech and his actions, is that he's becoming the kind of person who can respond to the call that God has laid on his life. God doesn't call Moses to where he is, but to the kind of man he can become that God knew he would be all along. And he's called forward into exactly that future. In that whole wrestling with God that Moses has with that Moses has with God. God says to him that when he goes to Pharaoh, he's going to give him signs and wonders to be able to verify and help um, convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. And it's after all that that now Moses and Aaron are up in front of Pharaoh in chapter 5. Right? And very much changed from the beginning. They've gone into the very heart of Pharaoh's throne room, right? Right now, the heart of danger and they deliver directly the word that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. They have the audacity to say, this isn't just an issue that's important to us or an opinion we have. This is the word of the Lord to you, Pharaoh. Let my people go. And after all of that buildup, after all of the promise of signs and wonders, after all the ways that we see God overcome obstacle yet again and again and again, Pharaoh simply defies their request. I'm not going to do it which is probably what they thought would happen and what Moses was saying all along in the whole conversation there. But to Moses and Aaron's credit, they don't give up. Say it again. Or Pharaoh, let our, Pharaoh, the Lord says to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh again refuses to relent in his desire in his will. So now that Pharaoh has refused these multiple times, it's time for all the signs and wonders, right? It's time for God to kind of unleash some Old Testament wrath there, some judgment, finally deliver his people. But in this exchange from Pharaoh, you're going to be disappointed because where is it? Perhaps this is a reminder as Moses and Aaron first come before Pharaoh in this moment that the signs that the wonders that God gives to Moses to throw his staff on the ground and turn it into a snake or to put his hand into his coat and for it to be leprous and then to be clean again are not cool tricks that they can do with the snap of their fingers, but something that God and God alone is able to do when and where and how God chooses for it to be done. Pastor Jeff has had me read a little bit of this book where they'll use the phrase over and over again that God is God. And what they mean by that is, is that there's a certain way in which God is always acting in our world, not in a way that we can predict or understand, but in moments of surprise and wonder. And that even for Moses and Aaron who have known that they are given by God the gift of being able to do these signs for Pharaoh, even they don't fully know and understand where, when, and how that will take place. You heard the passage that Christina and Indra read this morning. In the gospel passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's promising them, he's promising them when they're before taken before the magistrates, before the authorities, for worshiping Jesus, for living in his name, that they'll be given the words to speak. Perhaps here, in a sense, prophesying his 
own trial before the magistrate and the authorities. And we see some of this lived out, acted in Acts 4 and 5. Peter and John have gone to the temple and they've healed a man who is crippled. He's now walking. And for that crime, they're called before the prison, they're, they're called before the authorities and the magistrate. We're then going to question them. And they are given the words to speak. That they're going to continue to do this work to testify in the name of Jesus, to continue the work of the mission of delivering those who are lost to sin, to healing the wounded, to setting free those who have been oppressed. But where you might expect that to lead them to the moment, to give them the word so that they escape prison, John and Peter instead are thrown in prison. And even when they're delivered from prison, they're caught again and then whipped. Where are the signs in that moment? If Peter and John can make a crippled man walk, couldn't they certainly be able to somehow turn the minds of these magistrates or at least escape the punishment for the crime of making this man walk? Where is the redemption in that moment? You know, here as Moses and Aaron are before Pharaoh, it's important to remember that this story is not just their story, and that they're not yet to the end of the story that God is telling. They're still at the beginning. For some reason, as I was reflecting on this passage a lot this week too, one of the lines that kept on coming back to me is from Galatians 4, 4, and 5, in the fullness of time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that they might become children of God. That word, that phrase that's translated fullness of time, at least I think that's the ESV rendering of it, uh, or when the time was full might be other translations. That tells about a time that only God would know, the fullness of time. And this moment that Aaron and Moses are before Pharaoh in Egypt can seem very strange to me if I look at this story and I only see, say, for instance, Israel, the people of God, right? They're the only people that really matter here. This is, they're the protagonists. They're the ones who are going to drive this story. Because in this story, God sees all of creation. He even sees Pharaoh in Egypt. And even while he knows, God knows that there's going to be this faithfulness that's going to deliver Israel from the sin and judgment that they are currently experiencing, he is offering to Pharaoh in this moment the opportunity for mercy. As outrageous and scandalous as it is, as Pharaoh has been this primary perpetrator of evil and wickedness, Pharaoh could in this moment, as Moses and Aaron are before them, be the one who releases and sets them free to be recast in the role that he's been living here. Maybe the outlandish thing is that God doesn't change others in the story. He goes and things that God's people have been set on to Thank you. You can put this in my pocket. Um, 
But in response to being given that potential for mercy, even while God's people are experiencing the judgment of sin under slavery, Pharaoh instead insults, mocks, and retaliates against Moses and Aaron. And that's where Moses in those verses says, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? But the incredible thing here about Moses' lament as he experiences the difficulty of having felt like he was going to go deliver Israel, and yet now Israel is in the worse place seemingly than they were before, is that he still remembers whose story this is. Moses is still crying and lamenting to the God who sent him in the first place. He still believes, this is your story, O Lord. You are the one who made this promise. You are the one who can change this. He's living into a story that's bigger than just him or even just Israel. It's bigger than this moment. It's the story of the redemption of all of creation. You know, the powerful thing to me about Exodus 5, or maybe the thing that I felt like it asked me this week as I reflected on it, I felt like there were two big questions here. And the first of them is, what does your prayer life look like? Something that seems so critical to this story, it's written all over it. That Moses and Aaron would never have been there if Moses had not turned aside in the silence and the stillness of the wilderness and listened to the burning bush. And really, even in listening, even in feeling like, God, you can't possibly speaking to me or this can't possibly be your word, really wrestling through it, giving himself the time for the Lord to work on his own heart. I so often find myself, I mean, this is the audacity right of our faith. This is what Christ promises us, that that same Lord who speaks to Moses speaks to us continually by his Spirit. And I probably believe so much less that I've never actually been given a word of the Lord. I'll come to people maybe with my wisdom or with my intellect and offer them some advice. But here what Moses and Aaron have the conviction is, is that they have actually spent the time, they've heard that word of the Lord, and they're going to deliver it with conviction to Pharaoh. And maybe some of the time why I don't like to spend that much time trying to hear and discern the word of the Lord is I know I'll be called to greater things than I would imagine I could do on my own power. This is precisely the point. I think one of the wonderful things that Moses and Aaron have in this moment as Moses cries out to God is because they know they have done that hard work of discerning that this is where the Lord calls them, is that even when they encounter those setbacks and failures, they don't wilt under that, but further know that they live into and lean into their dependence upon God to right the situation. I think the second thing then that stands out to me in this passage, or the question it asks is, where are you? I think of that prayer that we pray here um, as the elements are consecrated, that Jesus Christ was anointed to preach good news to the poor, release to the captive, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And here, as Moses and Aaron listen to the word of the Lord, that's precisely what God does. He incorporates them into his mission for all the world through Israel. And maybe it asks me, where is that being realized in your life? It's not that it needs to be created. But can you see, Cody, Pastor Cody, 
um, where that mission can be realized. How are you stepping into those who have been oppressed and setting them at liberty as your Lord did? And I think that those concrete acts oftentimes demand a certain amount of humility and demand a recognition that the outcomes that I had anticipated or the way that I thought that they would go, maybe as Moses and Aaron did, are going to be a little bit different than what I had envisioned. And maybe with both of these, there's a certain measure of humility that needs to be a part of it. Because again, if I feel like I'm going into this situation guns blazing and going to fix it, I'm going to wilt when I see that my power and my savvy and my smarts alone aren't going to do that. But be willing, like our Lord, to even in some cases suffer wrong and rebuke for things that I'm doing um, in accordance with the will of the Lord, as a hope that that may one day be a sign and a testimony, if not immediately, to those around them. You know, we make these bold claims as we come to the table this morning. Just like we say with Moses, that there was a way that God was present in that burning bush, speaking to him, that even though God is present throughout all of creation, there's a special way that Moses was able to hear and respond to it. So we say that when we come to this table, the Lord is present. And that if, like Moses, we're willing in the stillness and the silence to hear the word of the Lord speaking to us, he will indeed reveal to us how we can live into his mission now, today, in this week. Again, trying to set at liberty those who have been oppressed, preach good news to the poor, and release the captives. We also realize that in this moment, it's not just that the Lord is speaking to us at this table, but also empowering and equipping us to live into that mission. That he feeds us alone with the power that raises the dead to life and defeats sin. That we recognize that if Christ has died and also risen, then we ourselves cannot have anything stand against us because God is for us. As with Moses and Pharaoh, the victory that's accomplished here is not an if, but a when for all creation. So come to this table in the morning knowing that even the darker moments up to open up to the light of the Lord. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're just grateful for this story of Moses and Aaron, of the reminder that as you send them in the power of your Spirit to deliver your people, to be a part of this story that we have to appreciate that it is greater than one of our imagining. That you're weaving all things together through your inscrutable wisdom and knowledge into this cosmic gift of redemption and of salvation. We pray, Lord, to live humbly and openly into that story to be willing, even in those plot twists that we didn't expect, to know that those chapters that steam down are yet leading upward deeper into your life. We ask you to send us forth in the gift of receiving your Son and to empower and equip us for your mission and also to be able to, in silence and stillness throughout this week, just live and embrace your presence. We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.